Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. Today's episode of One from the Vaults is going to be a little different. We'll be moving away from North America and Europe, going across the Pacific to New Zealand. We'll also be focusing a great deal more on politics than usual, maybe because I've been binge-watching the latest season of House of Cards. As a sex worker, there are few people more important to me than today's subject. An artist and former sex worker, this trans woman broke the seal on trans people holding elected office. She was the world's first transsexual mayor and the world's first transsexual member of parliament. And it was in part through her fiery words that sex workers around the world gained a beacon of hope in an otherwise miserable landscape of criminalization. In this episode, we're lucky that our subject has been so public and so open that I'm able to draw on a great deal of audio so that she can tell much of her own story in her own words. This is a story that, in her own words, help share the art of the possible, or what Laverne Cox might call a possibility model, for the power a trans woman of color sex worker can wield to create change. Join us for the tale of Georgina Beyer, the world's first openly trans politician. Georgina Beyer was born in November 1957 in Wellington, New Zealand. She's a Maori woman of Te Atiawa, Ngati Mutunga, Ngati Rukawa, and Ngati Poru descent. Shortly after she was born, her father left, and Georgina's mother put her into the care of Georgina's grandparents in Taranaki. Here's a clip of her describing her early rural life. But you're growing up. Was that a tranquil thing? Because I can't believe that it would have been for you when you were young. Well, when I was very young, of course it was. I, I, I had a good upbringing and I had a bit of a rural background there. And the first five years of my life I spent essentially on my grandparents' farm. And then my mother remarried and uh, we relocated to Wellington. And I was five years of age then and I started primary school. Uh, then. All of that part of my life was fine, but I must admit my transgender tendencies started to display themselves when I was that age. Really? As early as that? Yes, I mean, but um, only seen as by the adults, as child's play really, and nothing to be too particularly worried about dressing up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And perhaps uh, a little more effeminate than other boys. Uh, but otherwise, no particular problems uh, until I was about seven or eight and nine, and then, of course, um, conditioning to be the man I should be or the boy I should be, uh, taken had, had sort of more of the feminine influences uh, diminished in my life. So, so you my... were you you were pressured. I mean, because this is a oh. 
I, I wouldn't have known it was pressure at the time. It's yeah. just that I was sort of guided into different activities from playing with my little girlfriend down the road, Joy McEldowney, and playing dress-ups in her dress-up box and dress-up clothes. They thought, well, perhaps uh, my five uncles could take me out hunting instead. Georgina's mother, Nolene, married Colin Byer in 1962, a lawyer who would go on to become the Securities Commissioner of New Zealand, which, to be honest, I don't quite understand what that means. I tried reading the Wikipedia article, but it was really boring. But I'm led to believe it is sort of an important position in the financial world and related to the New Zealand Stock Exchange. They would split up in 1971 while Georgina was entering high school, but not before Georgina's surname was changed to Bayer by deed poll. It is here that she became interested in acting. In 1972, she won a College Cup for Drama Award for a high school theater production. Still, she wasn't popular in school, facing bullying for her effeminate behavior, for being, in her words, a little bit gay, a little bit queer. The bullying led her to try to suppress her emergent gender feelings. As an indigenous Maori in colonized New Zealand, her culture's traditional words and concepts of her gender weren't easily available to her at the time, making understanding her experiences through the white settler gaze and language that much more difficult. At 16, Georgina was still struggling to find the right words to describe her gender. She left school and moved to another city, determined to pursue a male part on a soap opera. Here's how she explains what happened in a mid-2000s interview on an Indian television station. I'm a girl. But I left home at 16 and I moved to another city in order to pursue a career as an actor. And while I was in that pursuit, I ended up working in a television program. I was still a guy. I was still a guy then. <laughs> I ended up playing a boyfriend of one of the core cast in the soap opera. And it was during this short period of time that I worked in television that I was taken to a drag show where there were all these transgender people looking beautiful. They had breasts. They were, And I thought, ah, it's possible. I can do this. And I made a, a decision for a very young person that perhaps was um, a little bit hasty if I was to look back on it now. But I decided at that point that I was going to pursue my lifelong desire to that point uh, to be the woman I am. Through drag clubs, Georgina came to understand herself as transsexual. She began performing as a drag queen and, after being denied welfare because she was trans, eventually started working as a sex worker in 1976. As she explains, most of the trans sex workers at that time were street-based and, in her opinion, considered the lowest of the low or bottom rung within the hierarchy of the sex industry at that time. She worked as a sex worker for between five to seven years in Wellington and in Sydney, Australia. Her take on sex work is that it was the only economically viable option for her at the time. And though she didn't feel that she chose it or that it was an overall positive experience for her, as we'll see later, these experiences would help solidify her drive to fight for the rights of trans people, queer people, and yes, sex workers especially. In 1979, Georgina was gang raped by four men in Sydney, Australia. She became suicidal and says that she felt, quote, 
like a worthless human being, end quote. She credits the support of friends with helping her recover. Here's a clip of her talking about how vital those connections with her trans sex worker friends were to her survival. And it did a lot of damage to my mental health at that time. I felt like a worthless human being. It almost drove me to suicide. However, I recovered from that with some support from friends. And of course, that's one of the most dangerous aspects of uh, prostitution. However, I must admit that amongst us, um, we formed a strong bond between each other so that we could support each other, look out for each other, um, and keep each other secure, a shoulder to cry on, I think, when we're feeling um, bad and lonely and all of that sort of thing. So we, you know. The horrific experience marked a turning point in her life, which led her to exit sex work in 1982. It also propelled her back towards acting and performance. In 1985, a year after her sex reassignment surgery, Georgina starred as the title character in a short TV movie called Jules Darl. Based on a short story by Anne Kennedy, the film follows the romantic relationship of Mandy, a quote, new queen on the scene, played by Richard Hanna, and Jewel, a transsexual woman played by Georgina Beyer. It culminates in the two fighting over what it means to be trans in public space. And I was surprised how relevant I found it to today. The film is available online and you can find a link to it in the show notes. In this clip, the iconic scene of the film, Mandy is being hassled for being a queen at the pub and Jewel comes over and introduces herself. She provokes the men by saying, quote, let me tell you about my op. And then the two of them run free through the streets of the red light district together. Mandy then narrates the beginning of their love affair. Ooh. You know, it seems a lifetime since we first met down at the dorm. One of those brown berry pubs, you know. I was a masseuse then. <laughs> let me tell you about my op, says Joel. She always starts off with let me tell you about my op. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm sitting in the lounge bar, taking shit from these jokers. Petrified stuff in case they follow me and do me over in House Street. You know the type. Well, Jules at the bar. Piss off, you bitch. Jeez, look at the state of it. Queer. Christ, you got a cheek shot up here, you crazy. Sweetheart, two thanks. Let me tell you about my op. I used to be Henry. Henry. <laughs> 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 
share my life with Job again. Job teaching me all the tricks. Everything's real camp, says Joel. Real camp. But every so often she lets something slip. Just quietly, no fuss. But like it goes so deep, she'll carry it through to the grave. Like about the time she was in the cells. Plucked off the streets, she calls it. She was cracking it because she was down to her last cent. A pig's tail, pick her up. They let the bloke off. Like you've got a wife and kids and all that. But Jewel, she ends up in the cells, reading the writing on the walls to the company, hoping she doesn't come out of there in a box. Jewel says she knew two queens who came out of there in boxes. Yeah. So Jewel says you've got to be tough, kid. You've got to never lose face. <laughs> we swap life stories. And later on, we sat and be having tea and ginger nuts. It seems... I don't know. Funny. <laughs> Hilarious. Two queens having TNG for Christ's sakes. For her part in Jules Darl, Georgina was nominated for Best Actress in 1987 in the New Zealand GAFTA Awards. Though she found success as an actress in film and television, Georgina began to feel limited in the roles offered to her. She was mostly playing, in her words, quote, women of the night. Typecasting that brought up her own difficult relationship to her former employment in sex work. So, Georgina made another big change. She moved to rural Carterton, where she got a job as a radio host on Today FN Wire Up 89.3. To put this into perspective a little, Carterton has a population today of approximately 5,030 people and is in the heart of farmland in Wire Up. The rural town is known for its conservative values, but Georgina faced them head on. She would later say, quote, Children would try to say to me, Are you that queer that's moved into town? I would say, Yes, I'm a transsexual. I used to be a man, but I'm a woman now. She found herself easily fitting in despite being trans, being a Maori woman, and being politically left-wing in the largely white conservative town. In addition to her work as a radio host and news presenter, Georgina also worked at a community center and taught a drama course. By the 1990s, Georgina had set her sights on local politics. First, she was elected to a local school board. Then she mounted another campaign to be elected to town council, but lost by a slim 14 votes. Not one to be discouraged, she aimed even higher. In 1995, she was elected as mayor of Carterton with a stunning 48% majority vote, making her the world's first openly transsexual mayor, a sensational headline that was quickly taken up by the press. Her popularity boomed, and when she came up for re-election in 1998, she won by a landslide with 90% of the vote. After her victory at the polls, she was approached with a strange proposition. The Labour Party just happened to be wondering if this media darling with 90% of the popular vote would run for Parliament. She accepted the challenge, 
though political commentators didn't think she, a Maori transsexual former prostitute, stood a chance in the right-wing electorate of Wairapa. But as she has her entire life, Georgina defied their expectations and won with a 3,033-vote majority, shifting the traditionally National Party electorate to labor. There was another media frenzy. Now she was not only the world's first openly transsexual mayor, suddenly she was the world's first openly transsexual member of parliament. Her story made headlines around the world. In 1999, Random House published a memoir co-written with Kathy Casey called Change for the Better. You can still pick it up on Amazon if you're interested. In her maiden speech in Parliament, Georgina highlighted the importance of her election as an openly trans woman. Let's listen. Mr. Speaker, I can't help but mention the number of firsts that are in this Parliament. Our first Rastafarian, our Green colleague over there, very glad to see you here. It adds diversity. Our first Polynesian woman. And yes, I have to say it, I guess, the first transsexual in New Zealand to be standing in this House of Parliament. Not only in New Zealand, ladies and gentlemen, but also uh, in the world. This is a historic moment. She went on to say, We need to acknowledge that this country of ours leads the way in so many aspects. We have led the way for women getting the vote. We have led the way in the past. And I hope we will do so again in the future in social policy and certainly in human rights. By 2000, her work in Parliament had come to dominate her time, and she reluctantly stepped down as mayor of Carterton. She stood for re-election to Parliament in 2002 and won with an even larger majority of 6,372 votes. And now we get to my favorite part of her story, and really the whole point of my telling it. As with many settler societies, formal sex work emerged in New Zealand through contact between indigenous Maori communities and white, mostly British settlers. These white colonizers were almost exclusively men, and the gender imbalance led to exchanges of sex for commodities, money, and alliances, with varying degrees of consent and power imbalances. By 1866, the colonial government of New Zealand created their own Vagrancy Act, styled after the British Vagrancy Act, which criminalized many bodies in public spaces, but particularly sex workers, most of whom were Maori at that time. Three years later, they would adopt the British Contagious Diseases Act, a piece of legislation controlling the bodies of sex workers and women accused of being sex workers by characterizing them as vectors of disease. The Contagious Diseases Act is an early precursor to the types of HIV criminalization that we see in Western countries today, including Canada, the United States, Britain, and most of Western Europe. It was replaced in 1917 by the Social Hygiene Act. Many of these pieces of anti-prostitution legislation were promoted by suffragettes' fears of promiscuity and venereal disease. Though they would be repealed, as with most countries in the early 20th century, 
New Zealand would replace them with a variety of laws, such as the 1961 Crimes Act, that moved from a focus on venereal disease management to criminalizing the act of sex work for its own sake. In 1978, the Massage Parlors Act was passed, legalizing certain brothels to advertise themselves as massage parlors, but leaving street-based sex workers without even these limited legal protections. Workers were required to register with the police, a potentially dangerous and stigmatizing prospect. In the 90s, police began to push for more registration and began pressuring advertisers with threats that they might be aiding and abetting crimes if they allowed unregistered escorts to advertise their services. A women's forum was held in 1997 that brought together academics, social workers, women's groups, and aid service organizations in order to draft a bill to change these laws that were seen to harm sex workers. The forum included politicians Maurice Williamson of the National Party and Catherine O'Regan, also national. O'Regan would bring the bill to Parliament. When Labour took power in 1999, they introduced the Prostitution Reform Act as a private member's bill. This bill is unique in all the world. It decriminalizes adult sex work. Whereas the previous model could be called a legalization model that requires registration and only allowed certain indoor forms of prostitution, this bill decriminalized all aspects of consensual adult sex work. Or that's how people describe it anyways. The bill still ends up shafting migrant sex workers by prohibiting those on temporary visas from working in the sex industry and also prohibiting immigration for the purposes of sex work. Advertising is limited to print and exists with certain restrictions. Still, this is the best sex work legislation to date and fundamentally changes the relationship between sex workers and the state. This bill is now the model, with perhaps some changes that sex workers around the world, including myself, are fighting to institute. The bill, of course, was deeply opposed. Conservative Party New Zealand First attempted to fight for the Swedish model, which criminalizes clients of sex workers supposedly in lieu of sex workers themselves. Religious groups and feminists were divided in equal measure. The bill narrowly passed its first and second readings, and then-Prime Minister Helen Clark gave her support. So, back to Georgina. As a member of Parliament, she stood up to defend the Prostitution Reform Act at a critical juncture. MPs were wavering in their support as the bill approached its third and final reading. Drawing on her experiences as a street-based sex worker and, in particular, the trauma of being raped, Georgina stood and delivered a powerful speech to the stunned Parliament. She began her speech, quote, Madam Speaker, I shall take the liberty of assuming that I am the only member of this house with first-hand knowledge of the sex industry. 
In this news report, we can hear some sections of the speech widely credited for changing last-minute votes in favor of the Prostitution Reform Act. I googled really, really hard to find the whole speech online, and I couldn't find it. So if you happen to have that footage, I highly recommend you put it up because it's really, really important history. But here's what I was able to find. Some of the credit went to Georgina Byers' impassioned speech. But please, I beg of you, I beg of you. The former sex worker's harrowing tale of a knife-point encounter silenced a packed public gallery. It would have been nice to have known that instead of having to deal out the justice myself afterwards to that person, I may have been able to approach the authorities, the police in this case, and say, I was raped! And yes, I'm a prostitute, and no, it was not right that I should have been raped because I said no! At least two members of Parliament changed their votes as a result of Georgina's passionate speech, and the bill passed by a single vote. Here's the votes being read out. As they're being read, Georgina and Tim Barnett, the bill's sponsor, jump up and embrace each other in joy. The ayes are 60, the noes are 59, abstention one, the bill will be read a third time, unlock the bill. It doesn't get any closer, but all it takes is one vote more than your opponents to change the rules. At the start of today, I knew that we had between sort of 58 and 63. And I told it. <laughs> Despite so many moments of triumph, Georgina's success and popularity, both in Parliament and in the press, came with certain sacrifices. In the 2001 documentary, Georgie Girl, Georgina talks about the ways her public presence has, in her mind at the time, cut her off from dating and relationships. The thing about having a, a partner or ha having a relationship is something that I have um, resigned myself to have sacrificed. It would virtually be impossible to keep a relationship out of the public eye because the, the whiff that I might have, who's that man on Georgina's arm at that particular function? Um, you know, also that person is going to have to be a quite a special kind of person to deal with that attention in the sense that my relationship with somebody is going to be a heterosexual relationship but because I am a transsexual that man is going to possibly endure some ridicule that he might be queer his um, his masculinity may well be compromised of course, it's nothing of the sort, you know, in reality, that's not what it would be about. But I know what, I just know what would happen and that that person would have to always have in the back of their mind that their mates at work might look at them a different way. They might want to know things that nobody else would even dare ask another person about intimacies and things like that. Probably the front cover of the Woman's Weekly, you know, I don't know, there's all of that sort of thing. It's sad, it's sad, and I know I'll live to regret it. Um, I regret it now in some respects because I don't have, I don't have that. I, I do come home, at the end of the day, I'm by myself. There's no one lying in the bed with me. Perhaps because of the many sacrifices her public life came with, 
Georgina announced that she would not stand for re-election in 2005. Another major reason for her stepping down was related to a seabed and foreshore bill. The legislation concerned ownership title of the country's seabed and foreshore, with strong opposition from Maori who claimed indigenous title to that land. As a Maori woman who was a member of the Liberal Party, Georgina felt split both ways. She believed truly in indigenous title, but felt that her hand was forced by her party to vote in favor of the legislation. To her, it felt like the ultimate betrayal. Years later, she would break down in tears discussing it publicly. She decided to leave politics in 2004. But then, a political rally held by the conservative Destiny Church changed her mind. She knew she couldn't walk away when such views needed her to oppose them. So Georgina took a position on the labor list until 2007. On February 15, 2007, she finally stepped away from politics. She spent the next few years struggling out of the public eye on welfare. She returned to performing in cabarets during this time as well. In 2013, she reappeared in the news when it was announced that she had been suffering from chronic kidney disease and would need dialysis until a kidney transplant became available. Still moved by the sense of betrayal voting for the Seabed and Foreshore Act had given her, Georgina finally returned to politics in 2014 when she stood for the recently reformed Mana Party in the Taitai Tonga constituency. She said that running was, quote, a way of making amends to Maori for voting for the foreshore and seabed bill. Georgina Beyer has had more careers than just about anybody, moving from drag queen to sex worker to actress to social worker to radio host to, finally, politician and international activist for queer and trans rights. And through her tireless work, she helped midwife the birth of the world's first national decriminalization of sex work. And while she hasn't always said things I've agreed with, and has even made votes she herself morally opposed, Georgina has given us a powerful legacy by illustrating what she calls the art of the possible. With her recent return to politics, I'm hopeful that she hasn't yet finished shaking our world up, and I honestly can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for the sources I used in putting together this episode. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. 
Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. Oh.